0: Our second reading comes from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 49, beginning with the first verse. Listen to me, O coastlands, pay attention, you peoples from far away. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my cause is with the Lord and my reward with my God. And now the Lord says, who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the sight of the Lord and my God has become my strength. He says... It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the slave of rulers, kings shall see and stand up, princes and they shall prostrate themselves. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Here ends our reading. Now, please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I can always tell when it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, or when it's Martin Luther King Jr. Weekend here in Houston. It's the Sunday when I have to weave my way through blocked roads to make my way to church. My first year, no one told me about the marathon. No joke. And I was running late, as usual, and got as far as the Allen Parkway before I saw the ominous blocked road. Frantically I tried to reason with the police officers. Surely they'd let a preacher through when he was late. Oh, Washington Ave is shut down too? My heart raced and my hands shook for fear of what would happen if I missed church. Not knowing what else to do, I brought up Google Maps. By the grace of the gods of technology, Google clearly marked out the road closures and even mapped out a route to the Promised Land on Binehorn Road. I was saved. But surely Martin Luther King weekend, junior weekend, is about more than a marathon, or even a blessed three-day weekend. There is some larger purpose to this celebration, a purpose embodied in a life, a life which it does us well to consider. It's altogether appropriate that we here at First Congregational Church should do this. Here was a figure who was a true modern prophet, a Christian figure, who was instrumental in bringing about a more just nation. As a congregation that cares about justice, and was founded as a place that was open to all races, we can learn a lot about how to do our work from this famous figure. Moreover, Martin Luther King's great aims, the things that drove his life, are still relevant today in some measure or another. Race relations, peace and war, poverty, these were the issues that mattered to him, and these issues are very present with us. So who was this man that we honor? And how can we learn from him? Like any Christian saint, he was not perfect. That should give us comfort. We are not honoring a reincarnation of Jesus. We are remembering a very human figure who was still able to change the world. That should give us each a bit of hope. Even though we too are deeply flawed, the chance to change the world, even in a small way, is our chance as well. It's your chance. The question remains, how do we do it? How do we learn from Martin Luther King's legacy to be a more prophetic Christian voice today? You care about social justice? You want to make a difference? This is the sermon for you. I guess that means it's a sermon for me too. One of the things I struggle with when reading about the life of MLK is just how different 1955 was from today. Sure, cars were slower and they had far worse gas mileage. TV was a relatively new invention. There were no smartphones. Apparently, human life can exist without smartphones. Who knew? But it's not the changing technology that's the hardest for me to fathom about 1955. It's the racial environment, particularly the racial environment here in the American South. 1955, the same year when MLK burst onto the national scene with the Montgomery bus boycott, was the year of the infamous Emmett Till murder. Emmett Till was from Chicago, At age 14, his mother sent him to visit relatives near Money, Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta. One day in August, Emmett had an interaction with a 21-year-old white woman, Carolyn Bryant, at the Bryant Grocery and Meat Market. Apparently, to impress his companions he had just met, the 14-year-old Till flirted with Carolyn Bryant. And Bryant later admitted that she fabricated her part of the story. As best we can tell, the incident involved Till saying hi and then perhaps whistling at Bryant. In response, Carolyn Bryan's husband and his half-brother tracked down Emmett Till, pistol whipped him, shot him, and then weighed his body down with a large fan from the local cotton gym. When Emmett Till's body was recovered, it was bloated and in the process of decay. Shipped back to Chicago, Till's mother put the body on public display in an open casket. This led to a national outcry. In the trial that followed, the two murderers were acquitted by an all-white jury in Mississippi. The following year, protected by the Double Jeopardy Clause of the Constitution, the murderers confessed to their crime in a national news magazine. That was 1955 in the American South. Black citizens could not expect the police or the justice system to protect them. One story after another from the time period relates the extent of the terror regime in place at the time, particularly in rural areas. So that was the context into which Martin Luther King Jr. appeared on the national scene. King was the son of a prominent minister in Atlanta, Georgia. He had been raised in the church and had all the advantages that his father's extensive connections in the Black Baptist world afforded him. A brilliant student, at age 15, King matriculated to Morehouse College in the midst of World War II, when Morehouse was desperate to increase its enrollment and open its admissions to younger students. He went from there to Crozier Theological School in Pennsylvania and then to Boston University for his PhD. At the age of 24, he was called to be the minister of Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. A great first call for an ambitious minister. Over the following year, the leaders of the black churches in Montgomery continued to strategize on how to break the stranglehold of Jim Crow on the community. The black community of Montgomery was fortunate. Compared to other areas of the South, Montgomery was relatively progressive. Maybe, just maybe, progress could be made. What they needed was a cause. Then on December 1st, 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a public bus and moved to the back, as was the law at the time for the black residents. Her arrest sparked an immediate reaction. The time had come. Within days, an appeal had been filed with the courts. A citywide bus boycott had been planned, and the black ministers formed a new organization to lead the effort, the the Montgomery Improvement Association. And then a fateful thing happened the more experienced black leaders decided to choose the 25-year-old Martin Luther King Jr. to lead the Montgomery Improvement Association. The choice of King to lead the effort was a bit of a surprise. After all, he had barely lived in Montgomery for a year. But his very newness helped him. Unlike the other black ministers, King's selection didn't solicit long-standing jealousies and rivalries. It was easiest to rally around someone without a long history in the community. King led a relatively affluent congregation that would lend respectability to the effort. Also, King's educational background gave him credibility with the white community of Montgomery. Finally, the other ministers likely knew what lay in store for the leader of the Montgomery Improvement Association. Accepting the presidency of the organization brought with it real threats to the lives and safety of the president and his family. It was a position of some prestige, but also one of of significant danger. The memory of Emmett Till was fresh in people's minds. What happened next, however, was the really interesting part. Shortly after being named president of the Montgomery Improvement Association, MLK rose to speak. It was as though the words of the prophet Isaiah were ringing in his head. The Lord called me before I was born. While I was in my mother's womb, he named me. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. This was his moment when God had called him to live into his destiny Before him were thousands of black residents who were committed to the boycott. With little time to prepare, he launched into his maiden speech. It was a resounding success. The years of preparation as a minister, the hours of impromptu preaching games with his friends, the reams of books he had read, and the experience of growing up in a minister's household all came to the fore. MLK had a gift, a gift for public speaking, and equally importantly, a gift for casting a vision for the moment. In 1955, MacArthur Genius Award winner and Harvard professor Howard Gardner published a book on leadership. Gardner is a cognitive psychologist who is best known for his groundbreaking work on multiple intelligences. But he was also fascinated by leadership, by those rare individuals who could change the minds of his or her followers. Leaders are effective, according to Gardner, not because of the power they wield. Compelling people by force is not leadership. Advocating certain policies is not leadership. Leadership involves more than speaking to the whims of a crowd, or even a charismatic personality. The key element of leadership for Howard Gardner is the ability to tell a story, a narrative, to frame a situation that leads others to see the, uh, others to see the world through another lens and change their viewpoint. To be an effective storyteller requires someone to know the narratives that are already embedded in a people's psyche and to use those underlying narratives in a new way. That is how you convince and inspire people to do a new thing. People see themselves in the new story and shift their identities accordingly. An effective leader must not only be able to tell a story, but also must embody that story in his or her own actions. When someone is able to do that, that person can change the course of events. Martin Luther King Jr. was such a leader. Starting with his speech in Montgomery, King was able to give voice to that which had lingered beneath the surface in the black community of the South. In that maiden speech, he said, and you know, my friends, there comes a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. There comes a time when people are tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing amidst the chill of an alpine November. We are here because we are tired now. The crowd that night cheered, and amens echoed through the sanctuary. King said they would engage in nonviolent protest and persist through whatever it took. He concluded, citing the recent Supreme Court case, Brown versus Board of Education, we are not wrong in what we are doing. If we are wrong, the Supreme Court of this nation is wrong. If we are wrong, God Almighty is wrong. During the year that followed, King did more than talk about his vision he embodied the type of persistence that was required to see the effort through to its conclusion. His own home was bombed in an effort to scare him and his family. King was scared indeed, but like, thousands, but like the thousands who walked through the cold and rain and heat, he persisted. After the apocryl the victory of the Montgomery bus boycott, King and his fellow ministers established the Southern Christian Leadership Conference in 1957 to carry on the same mission throughout the South. That same year, he enunciated the principles that drove his movement for an article in Life magazine. This was the new narrative for the black community. We can stick together. Our leaders do not have to sell out. Threats of violence do not necessarily intimidate those who are sufficiently aroused and nonviolent. Our church is becoming militant. We believe in ourselves. Economics is part of the struggle. We have discovered a new and powerful weapon, Nonviolent resistance. We now know that the Southern Negro has come of age politically and morally. This new perspective had an incredible power to motivate and lead. But the fight for civil rights and the need for a vision and new story extended beyond the black community of the South. If the struggle for civil rights was going to win, King and his followers needed the broader American population on their side. They needed a narrative it was compelling to the majority of Americans. And King laid out that narrative most clearly in two instances in 1963. The first was while he was in prison in April 1963, following his confrontation with Bull Connor in Birmingham, Alabama. While in prison, he read of the opposition to his movement from white clergy in the country. They cautioned King to go slow, to take a more moderate path. In response, he penned his famous letter from a Birmingham jail. King used the model of the prophets of the Bible to justify his cause, a model that would resonate with the broader Christian population. He responded to those who claimed that his group were outside agitators by writing, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow, provincial, outside, outside agitator idea. What a powerful narrative to tell that we're all interrelated, that the struggle should motivate his white clergy critics as much as it motivated him and his followers. As part of his vision, King defended his action that brought about a crisis. Using the wisdom of Socrates, something that would appeal to his white audience, he wrote, Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. Frankly, I've yet to engage in a a direct action campaign that was well-timed in the view of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I've heard the word wait. It rings in the ear of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has always meant never. We must come to see with one of our distinguished jurists that justice too long delayed is justice denied. Do you see the power of the reframing of this demand of white clergy to wait? Do you notice how MLK changes the story to make white clergy and others see King and his followers on the side of justice? King went on. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was evidenced sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, Meshach, and Abednego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar on the grounds that a higher moral law was at stake. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks rather than submit to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom today is because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. In our own nation, the Boston Tea Party represented a massive act of civil disobedience. We should never forget that everything Adolf Hitler did in Germany was legal. And everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany. I could go on and on. Do you see what MLK was doing in his letter? Do you see why it was so effective as a leadership tool? It relied on the pre-existing narratives of identity that Americans held dear and used those same narratives to craft a new one in support of his actions. He cited scholars like Martin Buber and Thomas Aquinas that the white clergy already held dear. He used the Bible and American history and the history of World War II to reframe his actions and and place his actions indisputably on the side of the right. The letter from a Birmingham jail is a masterpiece of leadership in the way that Howard Gardner defines it. This letter changed the way that people thought. A few months later, King delivered another masterpiece on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. There he gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. No speech in American history has been more repeated in classrooms and embedded in our national psyche. Again, what makes it so powerful is how it reshapes the narrative of America. It uses those things that people hold dear to cast a vision for a country where race no longer matters. Listen to these words. I say to you today, my friends... So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. This will be the day, this will be the day when, a, when all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning, My Country Tis of Thee, Sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. And if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring from the the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire. Let freedom ring from the mighty mountains of New York. Let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and molehill of Mississippi, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. And when this happens, and when we allow freedom to ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics, will be able to hold hands and sing the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Now that is leadership. That is casting a vision. That is using the strong undercurrents of society to show a new way forward. A new way that inspires and brings about change. It is no surprise that six months later, the great Lyndon Johnson was able to push through the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Himself a Southerner, a man from Texas. MLK had created a following that allowed LBJ to do his masterful legislative work. So now, of course, it's up to us, as people who care about justice and following God, to ask how we can do the same thing for our era. How can we cast a vision that motivates and moves people to create a new world here in Houston? What can we do? That's the key question. The reality is is that we here at FCC do have a story to tell. Out there in society, out there, society is hungry for a better vision. Every day we are told that life is about competition. It's the survival of the fittest, a zero-sum game. It's all about the individual. And that gives people license to trample over their fellow human beings. That's not right. And that's not what America is about. Another false narrative is that more material goods will lead to happiness. That's the narrative that is sold in every advertisement that we see and hear. More is better. Obsess over more. That's not true. We know it's not true. Another false narrative is that we are supposed to be happy all the time. You hear that everywhere. They hear that everywhere you look. You should always be happy and free from pain. That's simply false. And we know it to be false, and yet we fall into self recriminations when we're not happy all the time. There's a different narrative, and it's one that we try and live into here at FCC. We need healing in this world. We are broken people. We mess up. And yet we are worthy and children of God, each and every one of us. There are no exceptions. As humans, we need connection. Not to be off on our own individual island. We need connection with others and with God, with something greater than ourselves. There's a spiritual depth to our existence which gives meaning and purpose to life. We have that here and central to that meeting is a struggle for justice to be a voice for the voiceless and downtrodden. We are called to stand for that and to fight for it. The vision we have is a simple one. It's the vision that Jesus had the vision of Shalom of peace of wholeness for all humankind. The only way we'll get there is, is through telling that narrative and embodying it in our own actions and that is what we do here. That's why this place is so important. It's about spiritual transformation in line with that vision, both for ourselves and for those around us. It is to become the beloved community. And the fact is that if we cast that vision, if we can live into it, if we can consider it and make it part of ourselves, there is hope for a different future, a different reality. We can lead. MLK is one of the leaders who showed the way. He sacrificed all to move us collectively forward. And that mantle is now upon us. Together with God, we can create and are are now creating that vision of the Apostle Peter for a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness is at home. So let us all hear that call from the prophet Isaiah in our own lives. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to the deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, slaves of the rulers, kings shall see and stand up, princes and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful. The Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you.